then there will be a, a big fight between those that want to use technology for good and those that want to use it for their own gain and for their own aggra aggrandizement. So it's going to be a crazy next few decades for sure, but I don't believe that it will destroy civilization or end humanity. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. I'm also an investor in and advisor to more than 30 AI-first companies, and as you know, a firm believer in the power of technology to make humans better. We learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show, and the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact, this past week, Vidi Chug published a lengthy 1,600-word essay at datacamp.com about the current state of ethics in AI. In it, she proposes three areas that pose the biggest threats, misinformation, discrimination, and privacy. Vidi goes on to say we can mitigate the risks through a combination of transparency, accountability, and data privacy. Much of what she shares is well-known and all related to topics we've been discussing at length in this podcast. Vidi concludes that we won't solve any of the problems quickly, but that doesn't mean we're not all responsible for raising awareness that they exist. As always, we'll link to the full article in today's show notes. Now shifting to this week's conversation. Today's guest has been bringing families together online since 1997, when he founded Ancestry.com, which has served more than 13 billion profiles, amassed 40 billion people records, and generated over a billion dollars in revenue. Let that one sink in for a bit. He followed up that with FamilyLink, which he founded in 2007, and today has more than 50 million users. For the past several years, Paul Allen has been on a new adventure Having founded SOAR in 2017, he and the team are connecting employees to stories from trusted sources to help them make better, more informed decisions. SOAR indexes millions of hours of video and audio content in domains as diverse as academic lectures, political hearings, and even stump speeches. Not surprisingly, he and the team are using AI to make all that content discoverable and accessible. Paul's a sought after speaker a director of the Human Justice Foundation, and is one of the most mission-driven entrepreneurs of our generation. I've really been looking forward to this one. And without further ado, Paul, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Let's get started by having you share more about your background and how you got into this space. Dan, thank you so much for inviting me to be a guest today. I really, I really appreciate it. First of all, I love the name of your company, People Rain, because that totally resonates with me. When I think about my my life, I'm in my late 50s now. And as a young disruptive technology entrepreneur, I I just thought about, you know, how smart my team and I was were in internet marketing and, you know, uh technology, innovation, search engines. And, you know, we thought, hey, we can disrupt these legacy businesses. And, you know, as I got older, I started realizing the people cost of disruptive innovation is something that young disruptors often don't think about. I actually thought we were the smartest people in the history of marketing. 
And I used to think that for years, 98, 99, 2000, as we were getting millions of users to our websites, you know, first of all, the internet enabled you to find customers all over the world, get them to click. We had all kinds of, you know, guerrilla marketing tactics. We had a, the most successful affiliate program in the late 90s. So we thought we were so smart. Then I read a book written in the 1920s called Scientific Advertising. And it was by the gentleman who over 50 years invented couponing and coupon tracking in print newspapers. And they were actually smarter and more rigorous than any internet marketer I ever met. Now, they didn't have the same platform. They didn't have the ease of getting data, but they were so brilliant. And he invented so many of the concepts. And so I thought, okay, wow, 70 years before us smart internet generation showed up, there are these rigorous, brilliant people doing advertising, marketing, tracking. So anyway, there's a lot of humility that comes with age and experience and mistakes and failure. And I think for me, the biggest thing that I've learned over the decades is that it really is all about people. That if you're disrupting, you might want to think twice and say, well, what if there could be an ecosystem? What if the people being disrupted, just because they're old fashioned or don't have, haven't embraced the latest business models or the latest technology, how could they be brought along? And I, so I, I love people, uh, Rain. I love humanity first, uh, people-centric AI. I, I just think if more people globally could actually understand how incredibly empowered they would be at work and in life if they jump in and use AI, even today's versions, uh, the whole world would move much faster towards human flourishing and human fulfillment. What's going to happen, though, is there will be a concentration there will be governments using AI in oppressive ways, large for-profit corporations using it in exploitive and extractive ways, and the average person around the globe probably won't ever get much benefit from AI, at least not for many, many years. I mean, there's just a lot of people that don't even know GPT-4 exists, let alone the thousands and thousands of cool applications that are being built on top of large language models. So anyway, long-winded introduction, but... I'm happy to uh, resonate with your mission to help people be better and uplift humanity overall with the tools that AI brings. We were becoming fast friends before we started the recording, sharing our respective whys. And I was really inspired by yours. Can you share with our guests what, what, what is your why? It's a great question. I did take a why assessment uh, my friend, Dr. Gary Sanchez from New Mexico, learned a lot from Simon Sinek over the years, was coached by Simon Sinek, and then he created a why assessment. So according to Dr. Sanchez's why OS, my why is to is to build a better way. Uh, my One of my Clifton Strengths themes is ideation. And so I love ideas. I love finding a better way. That's definitely the the how. That's how I go forward. But the real why for me, Dan, is that because people matter most and people, humans, are the greatest creation in the universe, the human brain, the human heart, the human soul, there's just nothing that compares with a, a human being. So my view is that my life mission is to help every person fill the measure of their creation. What were they created to do? What were they designed to do? What were they born to be? What is their full potential? 
And each of us is different. When you have children, I have eight children and five grandchildren, you see remarkable remarkable differences in personality, even at a few months old. And then by the time they're two or three, their neurological pathways are unique. And you start to see this strength here and this combination of this talent and this talent. And it's just fascinating to watch any young person grow and develop. And then you see them 10 or 20 years later as an adult. And it's like, wow, humanity is so incredibly good at learning and growing, but each person is unique. And so you have to look at what were they designed to become and how can you help each person reach their full potential? Now, the education system, the factory model education system is contrary to helping each individual discover who they are and reach their full potential. It's like filling factory positions with workers that are willing to sit in a cubicle and when the bell rings, they move. And so factory model and cubicle-based workplace situations are not conducive to individual flourishing and, and helping people reach their full potential. So, but I, but I do think that there is a possibility in the coming years. I think uh, remote work, I think what on, Mark Andreessen said about uh, decoupling geography with, with our livelihood will enable more people to live in the country if they choose to and, and have a, a more rich quality of life with nature and animals and farm and faith and family and all the things that uh, make life worth living. So I, I actually am super optimistic that uh, that we are, there's a lot of change happening. And whenever there's change, there's good possibilities and, and bad possibilities. But um, yeah, that's my why. It's all about helping each person reach their full potential. With eight kids, you're well qualified to have an opinion about what's the learning environment that's most conducive to help every child, every human achieve his or her potential. What is that the future of learning in your estimation? Well, we were very careful with our youngest children uh, as we started having children and then over time, picking the right type of school for each one. We did private, we did public, we did uh, charter schools. And uh, we did flirt with homeschooling, but never chose that. Now today, millions of people are homeschooled. And, and I think that could be a really useful way to individualize the curriculum to each person. But we had amazing schools and brilliant, caring teachers. I could think every one of my kids has a favorite teacher or favorite teachers that really positively shaped their, their, their life. My oldest daughter is a published author. She's 34. And her favorite teacher, uh, Justin Kennington, uh, will forever be in the Hall of Fame in the Allen family because he was so good with teaching, writing, and English, and and thinking. And you know, she tried for ten years to become a published author. She she had a part time job, and and you know that didn't require much thought work. She'd come home and write two hours a day. She wrote hours and hours. she wrote multiple novels before she got an agent. And then the agent finally got her an offer from a publishing house. And then finally, that agent took the first offer and turned it into a six-figure deal with a bigger publishing house. And now she's writing her fourth book. It, come, it comes out in a week. And, and she's got five-star review. Anyway, she's 34. She wanted to be J.K. Rowling when she was a, a you know 12-year-old. And she read every copy of every version of Harry Potter. So for us, we did the best we could with what we knew. Now, by the time you're a grandparent, you actually understand psychology and parenting way better than you did when you were young parents. And it's kind of too late for you. But uh, hopefully our kids will all will all turn out OK. But 
I just think there's way better options for personalization of the learning journey and hybrid choices for schooling that didn't exist in the 80s and 90s when our kids were being born. It's ironic that we're here talking about technology and artificial intelligence specifically, and yet you and I are open about our why being related to making humans better. And it's really about you know bringing more of the best of humanity to bear. How do you reconcile the fact that many think that AI is potentially the end of humanity and it poses all these risks when we can still be vocal advocates of AI and think about how AI makes people better? Well, I am a person of faith, Dan, and I believe in a divine creator. I believe that there is a purpose for the earth and its creation. I don't think it was accidental. I don't think it was just chaos somehow, molecules somehow, you know, spawning, you know, not only cellular life, but then plants and then animals and the various kingdoms, the various species and genuses and all these things. Like my father was a classification scientist for decades. He he uh, he actually classified all inert matter that could be used in manufacturing, all the raw materials, the properties of woods and metals and plastics and ceramics, all the machinery that could be used to transform raw material into higher value finished goods. His software was used by Boeing and Westinghouse and Caterpillar and Lockheed Martin. My father was this genius classification scientist and engineer and computer-aided manufacturing. He had a laboratory in the 1970s uh, at his university. So, So as I watch my father classify all things, there's no way that this is all random chance that the uh, particles of the universe and the laws of the universe, they're not random. Okay, so if you believe in God and in a loving creator, then AGI is no way going to be the end of civilization. Like all tools that were invented, language, fire, the engine, all of the modern technology advances, and even the ones from thousands of years ago that allowed civilizations to build massive pyramids or, or water systems, aqueducts. There's just always been technology and tools. And for me, this is the most extinction of humanity. I believe that that a loving creator would want us to all find the ways and the best means for humans to prosper and thrive. And now we'll get in the way of it with with political corruption and greed and and you know the human nature tends to want more than your neighbor and and so we have to deal with that and obviously we have major problems when evil people or or um, un, unkind people uh, use tools or systems in, in exploitive ways. So I think that's the biggest challenge we have. But then there will be a, a big fight between those that want to use technology for good and those that want to use it for their own gain and for their own aggra- aggrandizement. So it's going to be a crazy next few decades for sure, but I don't believe that it will destroy c- civilization or end humanity. Been really excited about this conversation because of this element of it, the, the mission-driven entrepreneur that is uh, is Paul Allen. But also, I got excited when I used Citizen Portal and learned more about SOAR and the work you've been doing and kind of how it connects some of the common threads through your career. I, first off, give uh, give the audience a sense of the founding vision behind SOAR. And then maybe um, if I could tee up a second question, what does SOAR look like pre and post generative AI? Great questions. SOAR is what we call an AI studio 
you've probably heard about venture studios or venture labs or venture builder models. And so in this case, we're not asking entrepreneurs to come in and come up with ideas and, you know, let's go spin off a dozen or 15 companies. In this case, we've already identified 17 vertical markets that the SOAR video transcription, search engine, and added conversational AI layer could work beautifully on top of. And while a lot of investors say, Paul, just focus on one thing. I'm like, no, we'll focus on building a tech stack that can be reused 17 times in markets where we're not starting from scratch. We're finding a legacy partner or partners who are 10 years old, 15, 50 years old, 70 years old, and they are the leading brand in their industry, but they're going to be disrupted by a pure play AI company in the next two to three years. Their value is going to plummet and they don't have AI in their DNA. So our go-to-market strategy with the AI studio model is build this incredible tech stack, form a new corporation, provide some funding for product in a month or two, what would have taken two or three years if you were a from scratch startup, but now you're using all of these powerful building blocks. And so as you saw citizenportal.ai, it already has hundreds of thousands of videos from public meetings in the United States, city council, county meetings, state legislator meetings, all the committees at the state legislative level, Congress, all the federal vi video. It's basically C-SPAN times 100 or C-SPAN times 1,000. But with a powerful search engine of every word spoken in every meeting, and what's coming soon is an AI layer that allows you as a citizen to have a citizen GPT that actually can answer any question about what are your elected officials doing and saying? Who has a position on school choice or on you know women's rights or or, or gender equity in 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 the workplace uh, or any other topic and the ai will actually know what everyone has said publicly and it can come back with a very synthesized answer now it won't hallucinate because most of our ai is more like a perfectly knowledgeable librarian bringing you actual quotes from people rather than just a language model that predicts what words could follow what other words. And so, so ours will be a combination of conversational or generative AI with librarian AI or you know, using embeddings to search in the human content. So we're excited about marrying those two things, but we'll do that for the citizen portal. We're launching a faith portal that will index millions of sermons all across the world every week. We're doing a learning portal. If you think about all the lectures in higher education, when COVID hit and you have millions of college courses being streamed remotely, like imagine how much knowledge was put on video during 2020 and 2021, probably a hundred times more than it ever happened before. Well, what about transcribing and indexing that? What about having an AI filter that could say, hey, if you're in this career, why don't you find these? Here's these 17 professors from all these different universities that had a course and the material they taught is exactly what you need to know right now. So anyway, for all areas of life, we have a, a founder portal coming with a co-pilot for entrepreneurs. We'll have a friend portal that takes advantage of some psychology and, and assessments that can deepen real friendships. I think Facebook ruined the word friend for the whole world. And I think the the uh, epidemic and loneliness and stress and anxiety and depression and even suicide is largely caused by the loss of real human connection. Friendship and family are the single two most important parts of our life experience. 
the family's breaking down because of, you know, modern pressures and dual incomes and 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 all of the all of the things that a hundred years ago, fifty years ago, when families, multi generational families, were really strong, they didn't have kind of some of the the things that we live with today. And so there's a lot of you know birth rates are plummeting, marriages are happening later, and so loneliness is just going to continue to grow. Well, a family portal and a friend portal can use psychology and science to reconnect people to the people that matter most to you. And AI can play a key role in that, in reminders, in helping you ask the right questions. How do you deepen a relationship with a friend if you aren't really good at making friends? Well, you ask great questions, you provide service to them. And AI actually can be used in all areas of these parts of the human experience. And I think the trillion dollar tech companies are doing awesome work in AI, particularly around career and productivity. But I think they're ignoring what psychologists and sociologists would probably say is needed most to help humans get through the complexities of the world and find happiness and joy and love and meaning. And I think that someone with a humanities background like me, uh, who worked at Gallup for five years and Gallup studies the well-being of the planet in their global world poll, they, they, they study happiness globally, and they know the paths that lead to happiness and the paths that lead away from it. And I think that with that background and my friendships with the so many smart PhDs at Gallup, um, I think SOAR has this unique set of ingredients, a unique mission, and we're just as excited as can be about uh, releasing one product and one company after another to hopefully fill some of those gaps in the human experience that lead us to be miserable, but we don't know why. You and I are both the uh, the ultimate AI optimists. <laughs> and yet, as a citizen of the world, we probably share a similar concern as well. I know, for me, I think about the future of democracy and a future in which generative technologies will force us to question what is true. And when I think about the power of technology, like what SOAR is developing, to be able to extract, index, synthesize, you know, clips that should be a celebration of democracy, we'd be remiss if we didn't also say, you know, what happens when those clips are synthetically generated? What happens when, you know, certain clips get taken out of context and, and, and reshared? How do you think about your obligation as an entrepreneur and as a technologist, given that, well, for the most part, these technologies will be used for good. There's the potential that they can be used in, in nefarious ways. Oh, for sure. And we're going to see so many scam artists and so many bad actors using generative AI to do deepfakes. Even in politics right now, there are political campaign ads that have already been created that use uh, their, your, your opponent's face or voice, and it's horrible. And so there are some nonprofit organizations that are setting some rules, some kind of democratically generated rules that say you can't do this, you can't do this. And they're trying to get compliance from both Republicans and Democrats to say, look, let's not go down this path. Now, they probably won't be perfectly successful and there will be campaigns that do horrible things. And then the government might have to litigate or legislate. So, but that's we the people, right? Our representatives will have to solve these problems through courts, hopefully not courts, but hopefully through legislation. And it's through trial and error and through lived experience that we can come up with wise policies. So, but on the blockchain, 
the, the, the possibilities for Citizen Portal are very exciting. If we become the official video host of record for all public meetings in the United States, and I'm just saying that, you know, uh, uh, with a, uh, a hope that we can become known as that, even though it won't be designated by government. But if we put everything on the blockchain with a date and time stamp, every single clip, every single actual video clip and voice uh, audio clip, and then when someone does a deep fake, you can, well, first of all, if it was claimed to be from a Senate hearing or a public meeting, then you could disprove that. But but if it's a deep fake, you could actually compare the content with AI and say, well, no, that person wouldn't have said that. Now, I actually think it's going to be a huge problem because, you know, with a, with a TikTok generation, everybody, you know, doing video first and hours of video consumption every day, I think a lot of people won't be thinking critically. They'll see a deep fake, they'll believe it. I've been telling humanities students at university since 2016 that I believe the biggest protection against deep fakes in the future is to read lots of books. Take all the top thought leaders, political characters, read their writings that have been published by a, you know, gone through an editorial process and become so familiar with their thought leadership and how they approach the world that when they are quoted on video as saying something, you'll be like, no, that's not, that's not that person. Like now, again, how many people read lots of books every year? It's not very many. So I do think the blockchain uh, and timestamps and date stamps, some kind of an authentication system for public figures, actual writings and speeches could be a useful tool. And then here's the other thing. When quotes are taken out of context by a reporter, and this happens all the time, you're, let's say, New York Times reporter, you want to cast aspersions on somebody who said something in a political session, you go to the Senate hearing, you take the, the excerpt, and you misquote it, or you take it out of context. Okay, with Citizen Portal, there's a really fast way for us to scan through any quote in any online web page. Like, okay, Senator so-and-so is quoted as saying this. And as soon as we find that string of text, we can actually run that through a search engine, find the original quote, take you to the full context of that quote. We could do a little overlay on top of Google News or Apple News or any website. If you had a Chrome plugin tied into Citizen Portal, you could become immune from quotes that are taken out of context because every quote would become a quick link, a QIC, quote in context. So you get a little notification that says, oh yeah, here's the quote from Rand Paul. Click here, and now you see what he said before that, how he said it. You could watch how he said it. And, and people misrepresent uh, others all the time for their own political purposes. And I think citizens having firsthand access to what they actually said and how they said it will be a really powerful force for strengthening democracy in the world. We're at a point in the development of generative AI technologies where everybody is thinking about how we regulate them, but there's no clear answers and not really even a path to how, how the publishers and, and how the technology companies are regulated. As a publisher, how do you think you should be res held responsible for the implications of the content that you provide and potentially maybe you know, the decisions that leads people to make that you know, may have uh, unintended consequences? 
Well, I mean, Section 230 has given the social media platforms kind of immunity. I think anytime government gives you immunity, blanket immunity, and basically says, ah, you're not responsible for what people do, you know, whether it's pharmaceutical, vaccine companies getting immunity uh, because we're in an emergency situation or whatever, anytime government gives immunity from any consequences to any organization, I think there's a problem because that leads to, you know, poor decision making and exploitation of the system for for personal gain. Um, so for me, I think, okay, well, we need to be unbiased in how we build our AI. We want to be ethical. We have a great relationship with SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management. We're working on testing our leadership and our management and our sales communication AI systems so that they are inclusive, so that they are you know DEI friendly, we want to make sure that the training data sets aren't biased. And so through partnerships with SHRM and, and authors in the, in the DEI space, uh, we are definitely aware of the current bias in training data models. I think I, think I like the requirement for openness and transparency on like, what are your training data sets? I know open AI doesn't want to disclose them because they'll probably be sued. And the people whose content they crawled will probably want some remuneration. And I think that openness and transparency is important. Now, Google, when they did the Google Books project and it was taken to court, they were actually approved by the courts to show snippets from any book. In other words, they could store every word from every book in their database as long as they only showed the searcher a snippet from the copyrighted material. Now, that's a really interesting court ruling. I don't know whether that kind of ruling will happen in the LLM training space, but I, it probably will. And if not, legislators will will tackle this. I, I've actually been really impressed. In the five to 10 to 20 years ago, I was embarrassed by members of Congress whenever they would have a hearing on technology. It was actually quite laughable sometimes what they would say about the internet, you know, a series of tubes or whatever they called it. And, you know, Orrin Hatch once asked Mark Zuckerberg, well, if you don't sell Facebook, who, you know, how, what's your business model? Like, well, it's advertising, Senator. So there was a lot of l lack of understanding. But the AI hearings with Sam Altman, that three-hour hearing, oh my goodness, every single participant was fully prepped. They, they had the right guests there, I thought. One counter voice, which was really interesting, but the Democrats and Republicans and their staffers did a great job of understanding. I think there is a real uh, acceptance that AI is so powerful that even politicians who are often late to the party uh, really need to get their hands around it. They need to understand it. They need to use it. Now, I'm not a fan of slowing things down. What I'm a fan of is uh, as much self-regulation as possible. So for example, when you think about um, rating AI applications. I think G2.com, one of the greatest websites in the world for entrepreneurs to pick products, Captera, same thing. Imagine a rating system for all AI tools and applications. Okay, is this tool or application manipulative, coercive, exploitative? Is it going to cost uh, humans uh, their dignity or whatever? Like, uh, like a lot of tools, keystroke tracking, surveillance cameras, all the AI that they might use to kind of track workers on their bathroom breaks. I mean, that's horrible. That's that's Taylorism from a hundred years ago with Orwellian, you know, ingredients added to it. That's horrible and dehumanizing. But 
if you could find a co-pilot for every role in every company, customer service, HR, legal, finance, marketing, they all have a co-pilot. Well, is that co-pilot what I call pure AI? Is it personalized to you? Do you love using it? Is it uplifting? Is it like inspiring and motivating? Like, I love this tool. Is it responsible and ethical? For me, pure AI, there could be a matrix and this could be done by volunteers. It could be a wiki type thing or a crowdsource type thing or a G2 type thing so that all of us that are making decisions about what AI to use ourselves and what AI to bring into our workplaces could see, is this pure AI or is this manipulative, coercive, dehumanizing? Is it designed nefariously? And I think that together as we rate these things and classify them, that we'll have good navigation and decision-making tools to bring the really good stuff into our world and to reject the stuff that is, you know, big brother or, or scary, or, you know, causes people to be anxious and fearful. Well, unbelievably we're, uh, we're almost out of time, but uh, we're going to have to continue this conversation in a follow-up that I'm, I'm learning a lot. I love your passion so much to unpack just in that last answer. And I'm glad to hear that you're working with Sherm. We actually had a guest on this podcast named Guillermo Correa, who's the head of Sherm Labs. And I, I, if we you know, don't know Guillermo. We, oh, we know Guillermo. Sherm okay. Labs made a very large investment in SOAR. We're very uh, happy about that. We love Guillermo. We love the whole Sherm leadership team. They're fantastic. And so, yeah, no, we love, we, uh, that's really cool that I'll have to go listen to that episode. Makes my day hearing that. I'm glad, glad the two of you are in contact and Sherm's a great judge of character. So I'm not letting you off the hot seat without answering one last question for me. So you've had an amazing career where you've managed to merge your your faith and your human-driven or your human-first vision with the capabilities of technology. And a lot of people say that can't be done, that they're, they're fundamentally at, at odds. And you're talking to a lot of entrepreneurs right now who are, are lured by the potential to make money using generative AI and who may not believe that you can be both human first and be a technology enthusiast. Um, what has been the secret to your success, you know, finding opportunities where other people may not see them? I would say that the single most important thing that I've done in my life to accomplish what you suggest, or at least try to, is to read from broad types of literature. I have thousands of books. I order probably a book a day or a book every other day. I, I love historical content, biographies, uh, nonfiction. I do some fiction. I loved Russian literature. I majored in Russian in college. And so you can't read Dostoevsky without becoming deeply human. You can't read Tolstoy and Turgenev without understanding the, the struggle of the human condition. So so I don't know, the Russian literature genre to me was was extremely powerful in, in helping me understand myself as a human. And so uh, I think I've often bought weird, you know, Wall Street financial engineering books. At the same time, I'm reading about CRISPR gene editing, and I'm reading about nanotechnology. And then I read a biography, like the greatest autobiography I've ever heard is Booker T. Washington's. If you have not encountered that incredible human being up from slavery is one of the most it is the most inspirational autobiography i have ever read in my life i actually listened to it i usually read but on this one i was a six-hour drive and 
And I was in tears because of his ability to react positively and beautifully to a very horrible condition that would have been inflicted on him and on millions of people. But the way he he built himself and others up and the way he uh, reflected on that whole experience. And, and rather than being angry and condemning, he actually made the best of his life and tried to help everyone make the best of their life. We could all harbor resentment about what happened last week or 10 years ago or, or 100 years ago, um, and some people more than others. But I, I believe that um, reading, encountering great people in literature and in history is the best way to navigate the future technology wave that we're on while still keeping your humanity. I would say that Dr. Don Clifton's work, the father of strength psychology and the grandfather of positive psychology, I've read Soar With Your Strengths many, many times, and I've read all of the Gallup materials about positive psychology and strengths-based psychology, employee engagement. And if you haven't gotten a big dose of Gallup's thought leadership, you're missing out on the humanity side of why work matters and why friendship matters and what what matters about life and, and making life meaningful and worthwhile. So I feel like I've been blessed to not only read a lot, but working for Gallup for five years was an incredible experience. And having eight kids and having grandkids now, um, I think, you know, has forced me to be more human than I would have been if I had just been playing video games and Dungeons and Dragons and, you know, being a technologist in my 20s and and early 30s. And so I, I just encourage people, go find books, ask people what book changed their life and go read it. And read books all the time because that will shape who you are and how you view the world in a positive way as we try to build a brighter future using AI. So when I sit my kids down to read Crime and Punishment with me, I'm going to uh, let them know that Uncle Paul suggested that we do that. <laughs> Yeah, my daughter had crime and punishment assigned to her in high school, and we wrote, we we worked on her essay together. And I, I'll never forget just uh, having conversations about redemption after after making huge mistakes. Like, like that's a beautiful. Uh, it's got a beautiful ending. That final chapter is a is a tearjerker. Hey, Paul, on behalf of uh, Team Human, we're, we're rooting for you and for Soar because uh, there really is a path forward that involves making humans better with uh, with AI. Um, this has been great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for hanging out. I really do hope you'll come back another time. I'd be happy to, Dan. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's all the time we have for this week on AI and the future of work. I'm your host, Dan Turchin from PeopleRain. And of course, we're back next week with another fascinating guest. <laughs>